Welcome to Counterspin, your weekly look behind the headlines. I'm Janine Jackson. This week on Counterspin, coverage of what is quite possibly not the most recent mass shooting as we record the show, but the recent one in Lewiston, Maine, leaned heavily on a narrative of the assailant as a textbook case of a shooter because he had some history of mental illness. Fair's Olivio Riggio wrote about how that storyline not only gets the relationship wrong, mental illness is not a predictor of gun violence, except in terms of suicide, but it also underserves and even endangers those with mental illness, with at least one presidential candidate calling for a return to involuntary commitment. What isn't served is the public conversation around reducing gun violence. The Supreme Court has just heard the case U.S. versus Rahimi, which is specifically about whether those under domestic violence restraining orders should have access to guns. Most media did better than Time magazine's thumbnail of Rahimi as pitting, quote, the safety of domestic violence victims against the nation's broad Second Amendment rights, close quote. Because, as our guest explains, Rahimi is much more about whether this court's conservative majority will be able to use their special brand of backwards-looking to determine this country's future. Scott Burris is a professor at Temple Law School and the School of Public Health, and he directs Temple's Center for Public Health Law Research. We'll hear from him today on this case. That's coming up, but first a quick look back at recent press. Counterspin listeners know that being media critical is not a matter of having all the right answers, but about asking consistent questions. A central question is who gets to speak? In that regard, Jewish Currents ran a report on Palestinian commentators marginalized by major news networks in the wake of the Gaza crisis. Omar Badar's appearance on CNN International was permanently postponed after he criticized the U.S. for supporting Israel's attacks in a pre-interview. CNN's This Morning canceled a segment with Youssef Munayer when he told a producer he wanted to raise awareness about mass atrocities. And Nora Erekat appeared live on CBS's Primetime on October 12th, but was cut from the version of the show posted online because insiders said the interview was too combative and made the anchor look bad. Do those central in the story get to speak for themselves? Historian Maha Nassar from 972 found that over a 50-year period, the New York Times published 2,490 opinion pieces that mentioned Palestinians. 46 of those, or 1.8%, were written by Palestinians. The Washington Post published 3,249, of which 32, or 1%, were by Palestinians. Of those that we do hear from, what is their expertise? Well, in that regard, we would note that corporate TV is regularly inviting on former defense officials turned industry consultants to explain the conflict between Israel and Palestine without mentioning to viewers that these analysts represent clients with a financial stake in the matters being discussed, as The Lever recently reported. 
Former CIA and Pentagon Chief of Staff Jeremy Bash, for example, appears as a national security analyst for MSNBC, with no disclosure that he is a managing director at Beacon Global Strategies, a consultant firm that represents the arms maker Raytheon, which supplies missiles for Israel's Iron Dome system. CNN had on former CIA chief and defense secretary Leon Panetta, a Beacon senior counselor, likewise with no reference to his Raytheon ties. NBC's Meet the Press featured Ambassador Dennis Ross, but didn't note that he's a senior advisor to WestEC Advisors, whose client, Boeing, supplies bombs to Israel, and on and on. There's a joke that the sacred cow of the press is the press itself— It's not a funny joke, as so much of our understanding is shaped by the world media show us or choose not to. After six-year-old Palestinian-American Wadea Al-Fayoume was murdered in an Islamophobic hate crime, the New York Times quoted Illinois State Representative Abul Nasser Rashid making a forthright declaration of responsibility. Quote, let's be clear, this was directly connected to dehumanizing of Palestinians that has been allowed over the last week by our media and by elected officials who lack a moral compass and courage to call for something as simple as de-escalation as peace, close quote. But four hours later, as Wyatt Reed at Gray Zone noted, the Times had drastically edited Rashid's quote down to This was directly connected to dehumanizing of Palestinians, thus neatly removing the explicit criticism of the industry the newspaper belongs to. And finally, listeners know that people are being fired or denied jobs, written up on lists, having their campus clubs denied for showing any shred of support for Palestinian lives. There may be a sense that as bad as this all is, we will survive this McCarthyist moment, which reminds me of the comments of historian and author Ellen Schrecker, who, when she spoke with Counterspin in 2017, said, quote, we can't just sort of say, look at the 1950s and say, oh, McCarthy, you know, he was censured by the Senate. Everything turned out fine. Well, everything didn't turn out fine. We ended up with a war in Vietnam, among other things. But also what had happened was that the American political spectrum narrowed, that a whole bunch of ideas and causes kind of disappeared from American political discourse and American political life. Schrecker added, what about the books that weren't written, the movies that weren't made, the unions that weren't organized? In other words, the damage from McCarthyism is not just people losing their jobs or going to jail, but all of the movements, all of the projects, all of the books and ideas that weren't out there in American life. And that's the kind of thing that's very scary, because we'll never know. You're listening to Counterspin, brought to you each week by the Media Watch Group Fair. This week, the Supreme Court heard the case United States versus Rahimi, which asked whether existing law that prohibits the possession of firearms by persons subject to certain domestic violence restraining orders violates the Second Amendment. Media headlines were appropriately enough focused on domestic violence and what it might mean 
if the court decided that those who repeatedly assault and threaten to shoot women, as did Zaki Rahimi, or who fire shots in the air when their friend's credit card is denied at Whataburger, as did Zaki Rahimi, should perhaps be denied further access to guns. An appeals court, the infamous Fifth Circuit, had struck down the law because they said they couldn't find evidence of the Founding Fathers talking about that sort of thing. Well, past the headlines, virtually all media accounts recognized that whatever is decided in Rahimi, that way of thinking about the law and its application is a problem. We're joined now by Scott Burris. He's professor at Temple Law School and Temple School of Public Health, and he directs the Center for Public Health Law Research. He joins us now by phone from Philly. Welcome to Counterspin, Scott Burris. Good day. Well, as reporting has acknowledged, You can't make sense of Rahimi without talking about Bruin or New York State Rifle and Pistol Association v. Bruin decided in 2022. And I want to ask you to explain what happened there that is shaping events now. But I want to frame it a little bit because you address gun violence as a matter of public health appropriately to my mind, but not necessarily the most common framework. And I think there's even a bias against researching it that way. But what did Bruin do, and especially in terms of our ability to address gun violence as a public health concern? You might say that Bruin represents the reason why Clarence Thomas has stayed on the Supreme Court for all these years waiting for the majority to change. Because in Bruin, he finally gets to do, I think, what he as a jurisprude has long wanted to do, and that is to put originalism or a version of originalism at the center of constitutional interpretation. He wants us to ask, well, what did the framers think of this particular problem and what would they have thought of this particular legal solution? And assuming you can figure the answer out to either of those questions, which he feels quite confident judges can, that's the standard we use to see whether that regulation today should be allowed to stand. So, I mean, is that as dumb as it sounds? Well, the yeah. The Constitution doesn't say anything about domestic violence, so oops. I mean, if you, if you go back and ask the framers, what do they think about a guy shooting off an automatic rifle or automatic pistol at a Whataburger after he's had trouble with his credit card and then gets into a car crash, they literally would not understand what you were talking about. None of those things existed. And of course, as a group of half-slave-owning, pretty much all wealthy white men in 1789, uh, domestic violence was not a concept that would have had any meaning to them, even if they could associate it with anything that was going on in their time. So if we want to control the modern risks of guns and the many ways those risks ripple out through society, through various forms of violence, and also, of course, suicide and so on, we have to, we are limited to what the framers would have decided was bad and what solutions they would have picked is limiting us to a very few regulations. And that is in part the goal. I mean, the goal, one of the things that originalism does, like 
the, the companion doctrine of the clear statement rule in administrative law that the court has adopted is to make it very difficult to pass laws or issue regulations that deal with modern problems. It's meant to do that in the belief, I suppose, if I'm being charitable, that somehow the modern regulatory state that grew up with the modern world has somehow perverted or polluted the core idea of the United States as it was articulated by the framers in the 18th century. That's the nice way to think about why this is happening. The other context you might put this in is the 50-year war of industry and the right to hobble government and to free business from regulation, no matter how necessary and no matter how sensible. And it seems opportunistic in the sense that the Constitution or the framers didn't say that corporations' political spending was the same thing as free speech, but somehow it's okay to interpret that for a modern era. Lest anyone be confused, it does seem, you, you said it's historicism, not history. There's something meaningful there, right? I always try and be fair, like the way I'd want a Supreme Court justice to act. So we have to say that there is no perfect way of interpreting a legal text. Right. If you interpret from history, whether you're talking about legislative intent or in a statute or the framers' intent in the Constitution, you're going to be making a kind of guess. And one hopes that you make that guess as thoughtfully and carefully and in as unbiased a way as possible. If you are trying to make good public policy, if you're balancing interests as the style that dominated the 20th century would do, you're trying to say, well, what would the spirit of the Constitution dictate today, given these new kinds of problems? But there again, too, you are trying to decide what's best based on your best judgment. I think that the big difference between the historical, if we can call it that approach now of, of Bruin um, and the traditional or modern traditional tradition of balancing tests is that in the balancing test, we are talking about facts. How many people get killed by guns? How do those gun deaths happen? What are ways to reduce the risk of guns or of preventing people who are dangerous from getting guns? What evidence do we have? You know, you can be very transparent and you can try and base your analysis on facts. The problem with trying to imagine what was going through the framers' mind in the 1790s and to reconstruct a sort of history of regulation is, well, first of all, the what went on in their mind is purely a guess. It can never really be a fact to the extent that they never said anything about the problems that we're talking about and didn't know they would exist. And the second problem is sort of a scientific problem, which is that there's just so much we don't know about old law. And to understand those old laws, what they were meant to do, how they were made, in what context they were developed and how they were understood in their context is a lot more complicated than the court lets on. You know, the court has a kind of law clerk version of history, which is, well, I'll go back in the law library to the, to the deepest basement, to the dustiest shelf, and pick out the oldest tome, right. and I'll read what's there, and then I'll know the history. But we really don't know what those words meant at the time. And of course, then you have the problem that, 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 that is playing out in Rahimi, which is, well, what's alike and what's not alike? Mm -hmm. If you have a law in... Massachusetts that allows people to confiscate the swords of duelers, you know, in 1650 on the grounds that they're dangerous. Does that mean that 
you, you can uphold the law that takes the gun away from somebody in the 21st century. Exactly. You know, that, that makes courts do something they don't know how to do and that they're clearly not doing well and that I think a lot of them don't like to do. Um, which is pretend that they're historians, find examples in the past, and then try and understand what those examples mean for the future. I appreciate your wanting to be careful, but it's in aid of something. It's in aid of a particular interpretation of past laws. And I say again, the Constitution didn't say corporations, money is speech. And yet in that case, the court is able to say, well, but yeah, but they probably would have meant this. And then in this case, they say, oh, well, I don't see the words written there, so we can't possibly say it. The great example of that problem of willful or unconsciously biased interpretation is that the court in Bruin wanted to say that the law has to be the law that would be acceptable in 1789 because great constitutional principles don't change. (laughs) But we have to understand in applying those principles that the technology of guns has changed a lot. So we can recognize that there are lots of differences in guns. The court says, yeah, we accept that guns are more dangerous. That's just technology. But, you know, we don't accept that somehow the framers would change their minds about guns (laughs) because of those technological changes. So it's a very selective view of what changes they're willing to acknowledge and which not. And, you know, all judges are subject to the risk that they will put their preferences ahead of a strict interpretation of the law, or that their, their preferences will shape their interpretation. And, you know, ideally, judges create rules that limit that. They create rules that require explicit factual support, and they try and create concepts that will sort of hold them back from just imposing their will. But if a judge really just wants to impose their will, which is I sort of think the, the, the attitude of the conservative or the Republican side of the Supreme Court, they just use the rules as however is necessary to get the outcomes that they want. And this particular rule, the historical test, is just perfect for that because it's just simply not falsifiable. Right. You know, your view of history, my view of history, unless you say that something absurd, like the framers rode fighter planes, so we know they like heavy artillery, right. you can't be falsified. You right. know, the, the, if you read that Bruin case, they point to all sorts of laws and they say, well, look at this law and look at that law and that law said this and that law said that. So therefore today, and they get their conclusion. And and it's somehow divorced from the idea, which I know I'm in advance reading my email. Okay, these laws were made at a time when women weren't really people, when people of color weren't really people, and somehow were to say that still the laws that were made at that time about citizens are still the same things that we should look to the letter of them to abide by. I mean, it's a kind of religious approach to history in the Constitution. The underlying rationale for saying it should be as the framers said is that they were somehow given special insight, special wisdom, and that they were able to sort of not only solve all the major problems of their own day, but somehow write a document that would always be the right answer for all the conditions of the future. And that's obviously absurd as a matter of fact. They were just a bunch of fellas, often quite imperfect, as we should be willing to admit, Mm -hmm. who did who who made a document that was full of imperfections that we're still paying for today, the acceptance of slavery, the idea that 
500,000 people in a small state should have the same Senate weight as 20 million people from a big state. I mean, these are bad ideas. They have become bad ideas as times have changed. And a sensible society will recognize that we have to adapt the core concepts of liberty and divided government and federalism for a very different era. And we have to be open. It's not easy, but we have to be open to the discussion of how that document has to change and how the interpretation has to change or application has to change to face these modern dilemmas. That is not never going to be easy and it's always going to be controversial, but at least it's making an effort to adapt to reality. The problem with the historical analysis and the sort of worship of the holy framers is that it offers us nothing today to deal with the problems we have to deal with today. And it allows a sort of group of high priests to tell us by, you know, reading the entrails or burning a sheep on the altar, you know, what the law should be um, because they have access to the mind of those saintly, dear departed framers. Absolutely. I want to ask you, do you still face resistance to the very idea of thinking about gun violence in terms of public health. I know that public health is your thing. And I I know about the Dickey Amendment. You know, we're supposed to not research gun violence as a question of public health. It's not supposed to be in that category. Talk a little bit about that question of even talking about gun violence as a public health issue. And do you think that thinking has, has shifted on that? There, there is occasionally a political fight. Again, in fact, it's sort of an ongoing political fight over what we should call a public health issue. Right. Because of the, you know, the belief that if you call it a public health issue, that makes us more likely to be willing to do something about it. Right. The fact is, you don't have to call it a public health issue. You just have to say it's a behavior or a set of behaviors and objects that are responsible for 100,000 deaths a year, half of them suicides. And that society needs, you know, if it, if it can, to reduce the number of deaths the same way that, you know, we try to reduce the deaths from cars. Right. In fact, since the Heller case, since it became out of the question to talk about banning firearms entirely, I think it makes a lot of sense to treat guns like cars. People love their cars mm-hmm. and cars do a lot of good, but they also do a lot of damage. They damage the environment. They get involved in crashes. They run people over. Um, they blow up whatever the cars do. And we're all perfectly happy with the idea that the government should try and regulate cars and their use to reduce traffic deaths. And in fact, until the last couple of years, when probably cell phones have tilted things up, we've had a steady, really a triumphant climb in car-related deaths over 25, 30 years, over 50 years, really, since Ralph Nader and the early 70s. Guns are the same. There's no question now of taking them away, getting them out of society. People like their guns. They enjoy their guns. They, some you know, people get benefits from guns. That shouldn't be something we're so hysterical about anymore after Heller, that we should be turning our attention to the question of how we make them safer, how we make sure that people who are dangerous to themselves or others can't easily get at them. I mean, we cut traffic deaths in half, more than half, through regulation. Wouldn't it be great to have a world in which we had cut gun deaths by that amount, that we had 25,000 a year? It'd be nice not to think of that as a political question. Right. But, you know, the, the trouble with 
the situation now is that trying to call gun violence a public health matter is perceived on the other side as just another trick to get um, the guns out of our hands. You know, the, the, the whole paranoia about the jackbooted thugs from government coming to take away your guns or the woke liberals trying to take away your guns, the whole working people up to such an extent into a fantasy world of polarized gun zero-sum game is really, really gets in the way. Yeah. I mean, nobody who's working in public health has any illusions that guns are going away and, you know, are not really trying to take away, are not, not at all trying to take away people's guns in some broad sense. What they're trying to do is, as we did in auto safety, do everything we can at every stage from the design of the weapon through the storage of the weapon, through the use of the weapon, through you know, the ability to get access to the weapon, to the ammunition in the weapon, to where the weapon can be carried to reduce the death toll. And that ought to be a cooperative effort informed by research and proceeds without this incredible court interference such that you know, there's no room left in the legislature to deal with guns. All right, then. Well, we've been speaking with Scott Burris. He's professor at Temple Law School and Temple School of Public Health. He's also director of the Center for Public Health Law Research. You can find his piece for regulatory review, One Year On, Bruin Really Is As Bad As It Reads, online at theregreview.org. Scott Burris, thank you so much for joining us this week on Counterspin. Thank you very much. And that's it for Counterspin for this week. Counterspin is produced by FAIR, the National Media Watch Group, based in New York. If you missed part of today's show or you'd like to hear previous shows, you can find shows and transcripts on our website, FAIR.org. The website is also the place to learn about our newsletter, Extra, and to show support for Counterspin, if you are able and so inclined. The show is engineered by Riley Baer. I'm Janine Jackson. Thank you for listening to Counterspin. Counterspin. 